0: You know, if there's something that uh, TV has taught us is it's how starved we are for just a little bit of drama in our lives. Why would anyone spend their evenings watching, quote, the vapid lives of several New Jersey 20-somethings? How in the world did the Food Channel get us so hooked on watching People eat food. Uh, I think it's so weird that these days the the National Scrabble Tournament and the Scripps National Spelling Bee and Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest are are major televised events on ESPN. You know, people are looking for drama and and they can fabricate it out of almost anything these days. Uh, I wonder if all this is somehow tied to our. Postmodern sense of purposelessness. You know, if life isn't meaningful enough, well, at least we can try to generate some excitement for ourselves. And though we might not be stuffing our faces with hot dogs, we, we do try to create different kinds of drama for our lives, right? M- maybe your life is a kind of pleasure drama uh, where you're always looking to maximize your enjoyment, uh, eating at the best restaurants, pursuing great sex, enjoying expensive vacations. Or maybe you're more of an adrenaline junkie. Uh, your life for you is an adventure drama, you know, where, where you live for those bucket lists, uh, crossing off the next big adventure, uh, the next athletic achievement. Or maybe your life is a success drama. Uh, where, where, you know, however you define success, uh, whether it's by advancing your career, by building that perfect home and family, or by accumulating lots of cash. In in these and all kinds of other things, we are looking for excitement, for, for a reason to get up, for a reason to keep going. And if these things aren't working out for you, well, you can always find something to watch on TV. But is this what life is about? We've been working through the book of Romans this fall. And I pray that one of the effects that this book has had on you is to awaken you to the reality of the moral drama of the universe. Humanity has been given over to wickedness before a God who is unwaveringly holy and just. And though the day is coming when God will destroy all evil and all evildoers, In his mercy, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of all who believe on him. The the, the story of human history is this amazing story of God's rescue of sinners through Jesus Christ. And this morning, we see that drama enter into our everyday lives. The issue, the great issue of our lives is not how much money we're going to make, or how much faster we're going to run the mile, or how how our families are going to turn out. No, the great drama of our lives is, will death reign, or will life reign? Will I be enslaved to sin, or will, will I belong to a new master? And that matters infinitely more than any drama we could fabricate. Turn with me to Romans 6. We're going to be looking at Romans 6 through 8 this morning. And let me give you the outline. I really want to ask all of us here four questions. Uh, and this is how I'm going to structure my sermon. First question, have you died to sin? Have you died to sin? Second, have you been freed from the law? Have you been freed from the law third does the spirit of god dwell in you does the spirit of god dwell in you and then fourth will you be brought to glory will you be brought to glory my prayer this morning is that we would be awakened to this reality and that we will find the answers to these questions not in ourselves but in the gospel of jesus christ So first, have you died to sin? Read with me here, beginning in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so too may, we may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin, as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, but because you are not under law, but under grace. What then, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, Or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. If you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sins, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you'll remember, <clears throat> Paul has spent the previous three chapters explaining how righteousness, the, the righteousness of God comes to sinners as a gift, entirely free, through faith in Jesus Christ. But this raises, raises an objection, right? <clears throat> Paul, if, if forgiveness is entirely free, entirely by grace, then, then shouldn't we just continue sinning since that just means more grace? If salvation is free, then what's my motivation not to keep sinning? And that's a good question, isn't it? I mean, if, if the gospel was merely about something God did way back when, about something God is going to do someday in the future, but it has no bearing for how I live now, then what good is it? Well, Paul's answer to this objection is no. No, we do not continue in sin. Absolutely not. Why? Because for the believer... A profound change has taken place. Look with me. Verse 2, the change has taken place in Christ. Our sin has been put to death. Verse 2, we have died to sin. Verses 3 and 4, we were baptized into Christ's death. Verse 5, we have been united with Christ in a death like his. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with Christ. Not only that, but we've been set free from our captivity to sin. Verse 7, we have been set free from sin. Verse 18, we've been set free from sin and become slaves now to righteousness. Verse 22, set free from sin to serve God. And, And not only that, but we've been transferred to a whole new realm. Right? That's what we see there in 13. We've been brought from death to life. We are not under law but under grace, verse 14. What this is saying is that upon faith in Christ, we have been given a new identity, a new reality. We have died to sin. But to understand exactly what that means, we have to understand how it happened. And we see it there in verse 5. Verse 5. If we have been united with him, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. When I place my faith in Christ, something far more profound happens than simply my sins are forgiven. Rather, by faith, I become united to Jesus Christ. What does that mean that that we're united to Christ? Well, I think the best way to think about our union with Christ is to go with what Paul has been saying so far here in the book of Romans. This union with Christ is about God's declaration over our lives. It's not saying that we were like physically present there on the cross. But, but when we put our trust in Christ, in the mind of God, God counts us as having been there with Christ. God considers Christ as representing us and we as being represented in him. And so as far as God is concerned, we now belong to Christ. We are joined with Christ. His death is our death. His life is our life. And that's what it means for us to be dead to sin. His death for sin and to sin becomes my death for sin and to sin. God counts me as having been there, and that matters more than anything else. It's being represented by Christ that allows me then to be declared righteous, forgiven. And not only that, but now his new life has become my new life, so that now I no longer have to live the way I used to live, but I've been given a new identity. I am a new creation. This is why baptism is such a great picture of our salvation. You know, far from being simply a a ritual, baptism displays our union with Jesus Christ when we come to him by faith. We are baptized into Christ, into his death, and then raised to new life just as he was raised. You know, we often talk about baptism being our public declaration to the world about our faith in Christ. But do you see here that baptism is also God's declaration to you about your union with his son. God gave us this ordinance precisely in order that we would come to understand what he has done in saving us. And yet, this act of God is is no mere fantasy. No, having been freed from sin, we now prove the reality of this salvation as we live lives that are no longer ruled by sin but by our new master. Previously, we gave ourselves to impurity, to ever-increasing wickedness, but now we offer ourselves to righteousness and service of God, leading to holiness and life. So notice what Paul is saying here. He's not saying, Christian, don't sin because you should be good. Therefore, be good. That's not what he's saying. And, and sadly, so much of the logic of evangelical morality is just that, right? You are not fill in the blank. You should be fill in the blank. Therefore, be fill in the blank. You're, you're not pure. You should be pure. Therefore, be pure. You know, that, that's so much of sort of evangelical teaching. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Rather, he's saying something far more profound. If you are a Christian, then you are dead to sin. You have been rescued from death to life. You have been set free from your slavery to sin to serve righteousness. This is what God has already accomplished in you by his grace. Now live like it. In other words, the, the facts of what God has already done drive the commands of what we're to do. Don't get that order mixed up. You, you don't obey in order to be dead to sin. No, through the gospel, you are dead to sin. Therefore, obey. This is why the very first imperative that we get here in the book of Romans comes to us in verse 11. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin... uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Count yourselves dead to sin. The first command that we're given. The most fundamental thing for us to do in our obedience is to believe. Believe in what God has accomplished. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And it's by that faith that we now live a new life. I don't know what you do in terms of motivation in obedience to God. I don't know what you turn to when it comes to obeying God and fighting sin. Maybe you're a duty kind of person, right? You know that sin is wrong. You know that you should be holy. And therefore, let's just do it, right? Let me just grit my teeth and get it done. I'll go to church I'll stop watching R-rated movies. Um, I'll forgive this person I'm supposed to forgive. Or maybe you're more of a feelings kind of guy or girl. Uh, Your obedience is driven more by your emotions. You know, when when life is hard um, or when you have those mountaintop experiences, when when you're surrounded by godly people, that then you are motivated to obey Uh, There there are all kinds of motivations that we turn to, right? We want to earn God's favor. We want to impress other people and on and on. What this is saying is that all of those foundations are sand. They, they, They are never solid enough to produce true and lasting obedience. The only foundation for genuine holiness is found in what God has already accomplished in you through Jesus Christ. So for example, let's say you're struggling with with really resentful thoughts towards someone here in the church. Uh, This person just crosses you in all the wrong ways. You you find yourself judging them in your heart. Uh, They've offended you in the past, and you find yourself really struggling with bitterness against that person. What are you going to do? Well, instead of saying, God says I should love and forgive, therefore let me just do it, Begin here. Begin here in the gospel. Remind yourself of the gospel. Though you once were offensive to God, God in his mercy drew you to himself. He joined you in all your sinfulness to his son in order that he might sacrifice himself for you. On the cross, your sin, all of your hatred, all of your bitterness, all of your unforgiveness was put to death. And as far as God is concerned, those sins are gone. They are buried with Christ in the grave. And now God has raised his son in order that with him you might live in the freedom of his righteousness. So will you now go back to those sins? Will you now continue to give yourself over to those sins? Or will you now, in dependence on God, confess your sins? And pray for this person. You ask God to to help you to speak kind words to them. Look for opportunities to serve them rather than to resent them. Friends, this is how we battle sin. Why should I no longer look at pornography? Why should I not hoard my money? Why should I not live for myself? Because that's no longer who I am. When Christ died, he took all my sin down with him to the grave. I have died to my lusts. I have died to my greed. I have died to my selfishness. So why would you live in it any longer? If you're not a Christian here this morning, the the most important thing that you need to hear is is this promise at the end of chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that image there in chapter 6 is a powerful description of your life. You are presently enslaved to your sin. And what's even worse, this is a voluntary slavery. You think you're free. You think you get to do whatever you want. But the truth is, is that you love your sin. You love the very one that holds you captive. You are enslaved to your sin. And the only wages that sin pays is death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. That ultimate separation from God. But there is hope. Though you have turned away from God, in his mercy, he has sent his perfect son into this world to bear your sins. Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, and there he bore the wages of your sin, dying in the place of sinners. And in doing so, he conquered sin and death, so that three days later, God raised them from the dead, and now God promises to you that if you will repent of your sin and trust in Christ, you will receive the gift of God, eternal life in Jesus Christ. This promise is, is held out to all of us this morning. And if, if this is something new for you, I would love to talk to you more about this after the service. Come find me. Come, come talk to a Christian who brought you or, or any member of this church. We would love to explore this with you further. Second question that we see here in Romans. Have you been freed from the law? Have you been freed from the law? Look with me here in chapter seven. Do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to men who, are, who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say, then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful." We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do not do what I want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin At work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now, Paul is continuing on this theme of what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ. But here in chapter 7, it's particularly in relation to the law. Uh, Just as the death of a spouse frees a woman from the law so that she is now free to marry another, so our dying with Christ frees us from the law in order that we might belong to Christ. What kind of spouse was the law? Well, it was a spouse that only aroused our sinfulness, that led us to death. But Jesus Christ is a different kind of husband. He loves his bride and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You know, the law revealed how far short we had fallen of of God's glory. But Christ comes and he covers us with all of our sinfulness, all of our imperfections, he covers us with his perfect glory. What does it mean to be freed from the law? Well, it means that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your relationship with God is no longer regulated by your ability to keep the law. Let me say that again. To be freed from the law means that your relationship with God Is no longer regulated by your ability to keep the law. But instead, it is secured by Jesus Christ. But all this raises an important question. Isn't God's law supposed to be good? How did God's law become such a destructive force in our lives? Well, that's what Paul then unpacks in verses 7 through 25. God revealed to the people of Israel... His law through Moses. And that law was good. It was a holy expression of his perfect will and perfect character. And yet, what we see in the story of Israel, what we see in Paul, what we see in our lives, is that when the law comes in contact with our sin, instead of subduing our sin, it actually increases our temptation, it increases sin's deceitfulness. And it results in, in more sin and more condemnation. It's like the teenager who goes out and gets the mail, right? He sees there's, there's nothing there for him. He, he leaves it on the dinner table. But as he's walking away, he notices one envelope from his teacher addressed to his parents. And in big red letters, it says, for parents only. And now he's asking, wait, wait a minute, what's going on here? Am, am I in trouble? What are they conspiring uh, what are they saying about me? And now, he really wants to open it. What just happened? I mean, previously, he couldn't care less what was in those envelopes. But now, as a law comes, his sin deceives him with fears, with suspicion, with mistrust, and tempts him to respond in disobedience. The problem is not with the envelope. The problem is within The law of Moses could never do anything for us whose very beings have been corrupted by sin. Our problem goes far deeper than simply not knowing the good that we're supposed to do. What we see in Paul's experience is that even when we know the law, even when we acknowledge that it is good, even when we want to carry it out, because of sin we still find ourselves so often unable to do it. Instead, the evil that we hate, the evil that the law exposes, that we keep on doing. It turns out that in receiving the law far from being made holy, we come to discover just how far we've fallen, just how deep our sin goes. And so we hear the cry of humanity. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? from this body of death. I think what this passage highlights for us is the reality of the struggle of the Christian life. If there was no chapter 7, if all we had was chapter 6 and chapter 8 coming up, um, we would be thinking, man, you know, I'm supposed to be dead to sin? I'm supposed to be filled by the Spirit? Sanctification it really sounds like it's supposed to be really easy. But, but it's not. It sure isn't easy in my life. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm not really saved. But God, in his mercy, inspired these words. Jesus Christ is our merciful and sympathetic high priest. He knows what it is like to be tempted. The truth is that the Christian life is a struggle. You know, Paul calls it a race, but sometimes it's all we can do to crawl. It's all we can do to to face the right direction. And yet it's in those moments that we say with Paul, who will rescue me from this body of death, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, for my non-Christian friends here, I trust that you know something of your human inability to keep God's laws. God in his mercy has given you a conscience and you know something of the wrongness, of selfishness, of, of your addictions, of pride. And yet, again and again, sometimes even instinctively, you, 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 you can't help yourself but to go back to those old sins. In your thoughts, and your relationships, when nobody is watching, you find yourself trapped by sin. And the question is, what will you do then with your guilty conscience? The world will tell you, Ah, uh, well, guilt is just a social construct. Morality is relative. You know, take a pill, go, go watch a movie, and, and you'll forget all about it. But deep down inside, we know that's not right. Our sense of guilt is wired into us, and it functions like an alarm. To try to turn it off without dealing with it would be like turning off a fire alarm without dealing with the fire that is raging. What our guilty consciences tell us is that we have broken God's law. Our our problem is not only that we feel guilty, but that we are guilty. So, what will you do to free yourself from God's law? But if you are a Christian, you have been released from the law, through the gospel. We, We know our guilt and we have some place to go with it. We go with our guilt to the cross and there find our sins covered by the death of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you find yourself weighed down by guilt, know that this guilt does not come from the gospel. Rather, there's a good chance that you are turning back to a law. No, law is alluring. After all, rather than being justified by faith... Man-made laws provide us a a standard of righteousness that we can see, that we can measure. As long as you meet those standards, you can feel good about yourself. You can look down on others. Oh, but when you fall short, how quickly will the law turn on you and condemn you? You know, my wife tells me that this is something that um, moms, in particular, struggle with. Uh, It's really easy for moms to kind of set up Man-made standards of righteousness, right? Is the house clean enough? Am I preparing good enough meals? Are my kids you know, obedient enough? Am I being productive enough? And on and on. And really, that's not just, that's just, that's not just moms. That's all of us, isn't it? Uh, there's this constant temptation for us to compare, to envy, to measure, to feel like a failure. Brothers and sisters, if that's you, hear what God has said, is saying to you this morning, You have been freed from the law. Law Law-keeping is not what determines your relationship with God. God loves you in Christ, and you have been set free. Will you live in that freedom? Third, does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Does the Spirit of God dwell in you? Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that sinful nature desires but those who live according in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not belong to Christ, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. For all of us here, if you're a Christian, verse 1 should be the banner over your life. Having died to sin, having been freed from the law, there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And now your life belongs not to sin, but to the Spirit. Here, Paul is turning the diamond of our salvation just a little bit more to reveal a a new glory, a new facet. In chapter six, we saw how we were we were united with Christ. We were baptized into him. But now in chapter eight, we see a different reality where now Christ is joins himself with us. He dwells in us by his spirit. That's what Jesus promised his disciples there in John 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. He lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And we who have trusted in Christ... Have received this promise so that we now no longer live according to the flesh, but are now controlled by the Spirit. It's striking here that as much as Paul is talking about the Spirit, yet again and again, our attention is brought back to Jesus Christ. Verse 2 It is through Christ Jesus that the Spirit sets us free from sin and death. Verse 3 God condemns sin and fulfills the law through his Son for those who live according to the Spirit. Verse 9, it's the Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and we belong to Christ. Verse 11, the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead. You know, all this shows us that the work of the Spirit is inseparably tied to the Son. J.I. Packer compares the Holy Spirit to a floodlight, right? The Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder, on to Jesus, who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. But always, look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace. And there we get a clue as to what Paul means when he calls us to live by the Spirit and to put put sin to death by the Spirit. Again, not by gritting our teeth, not by willpower, not by returning to the law, but rather by trusting in Christ and all that he has done for us so that through the Spirit we gain a a sense of who we really are, children of God. That's what we see there in verses 14 and 15. As we fix our attention on Christ, the Spirit reveals God to us not as judge, but as loving father, our Abba, our, our daddy. We have received a spirit of sonship. And as sons and daughters, we obey because we love him and we trust him and we want to please him. That's how you put sin to death. Whatever sinful desires you used to have as orphans, those have now been replaced with love for God. So that we now live for our loving Heavenly Father who has adopted us, even at great cost to himself. To do spiritual battle against your sin will require nothing less than the three persons of the Trinity engaged in your life. As the Father's love is revealed to us by the Spirit's indwelling power through faith in Christ. So, if you have known any true conviction of sin... Any love for Jesus Christ? Any knowledge of God as your heavenly father? Know that it did not happen because you are smarter or better than others. No, it came about by by the spirit working faith in you in response to the gospel. And if you have known those things, then be encouraged. God's spirit dwells in you. God is at work in your life. He has begun a good work, and he will bring it to completion. Don't take it for granted, but thank God for it. And then continue in it. Keep putting sin to death. As John Owen said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That's why we talk about spiritual disciplines. That's why we emphasize reading our Bibles, praying, being in fellowship with one another. Not because those things save us. But it's in those things that we encounter Christ, where we express our dependence on Him, where we hear the gospel preached at us. Don't don't define your love for God in your performance of those things, but rather use disciplines as means by which you set Christ before your face, and, and the Holy Spirit then illumines Christ. And you grow to love and delight in Christ more than your sin. Let's pursue Christ together, let's do this for one another. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit would show us more and more of the glories of the Son. Finally, number four. Will you be brought to glory? Will you be brought to glory? Look at Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. You know, Paul has shown in the previous chapters how Christ has broken the power of sin delivered us from the wrath of God. But if there's anything that can cause us to doubt the truth of the gospel, it's fear. It's uncertainty about our futures. With all that is hard about life, what assurance do I have that I'm going to make it to the end? What assurance do I have that God is strong enough to keep me through it all? Romans 8.28 We know That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, in all things, God sovereignly works for the good of his people. Which means that everything that God brings into your life is part of his sovereign plan to do you good. And what is that good? Verse 29 For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. The good that God is after in your life is nothing less than to conform you into the image of His Son. In every blessing, in every hardship, God is making us more and more like Christ. And this is really good news. Because look where it leads. Verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That there is the unbreakable chain of salvation. Not one will be lost. Every single one of God's children will be brought home to glory, conformed to the image of his son. And it is that promise That gives us hope. That gives us hope in the midst of a world that is groaning in futility and frustration. Disease. Earthquakes. We we saw last week footage of, of a hurricane wiping out an entire city. That's the bondage of creation to death. And yet in verse 20, we see that even this curse did not come about by itself. But from the sovereign hand of God, who subjected it in hope, looking to the day when creation will be set free. When will that be? Well, it will be on the day when the children of God are also gloriously set free. Isn't that amazing? The, the cosmos, the galaxies, all of creation waits with bated breath for the day when our glory is revealed. But in the meantime, we groan along with creation in eager longing for that day, awaiting our public recognition as the children of God. And yet we groan in hope. The suffering that we are going through, we remember, is not the triumph of evil, no, it is God's curse on evil. Death is his decisive word that this fallen world will not last and that there is a better world to come. Brothers and sisters, you were saved in hope. And, and, and this isn't just wishful thinking. No, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits, the guarantee of all that is to come. And so know that your present battle with sin, with suffering, will have an end. So persevere in hope. Carry your torch of hope in the midst of these dark days, knowing that the sun will soon dawn. And so in the face of all that stands against us, what's our conclusion? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, actually, a lot can be against us, right? I mean, Satan continually accuses us, reminding us of our failures, pointing out our hypocrisy, showing us our unbelief. The world considers us bigoted, intolerant, ridiculous. In our flesh, we continue to wrestle with pride, with lust, with anger, with idols. The forces of darkness are arrayed against the people of God. But God is for us. God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That is, who can be against us with any measure of success? But will God give me all that I need to make it to the end? He who did not spare his own son, his infinitely precious, valuable treasure, but gave him up for us all. How then will he not give you everything else that you need to make it to the end? Who will bring any charge against you? Well, yes, Satan, the world, our guilty consciences. But it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. And so what does it matter what anyone else says? Who dares to condemn you before God? The risen Jesus Christ stands at the right hand of God, never to die again, forever to represent you before his Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, God is for you. Though the world may hate you, though Satan and your flesh accuse you, in Jesus Christ there is no ground for anyone to effectively bring any accusation against you before God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are justified. You are secure. But that still leaves the matter of suffering. If Satan cannot condemn you in heaven, then surely he will bring about great suffering upon you here on earth. And none of us know what the future may bring. Some of us here will one day be arrested and tortured for our faith, as so many Christians around the world are today. Some of us here will lose our minds And we'll spend the last years of our lives in confusion and distress. Others here will struggle with, with lifelong sadness, deep loneliness. Still others will experience tragic deaths, loss of loved ones. And unless Jesus Christ comes back in our lifetimes, all of us will one day face death. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. How can I know that I'm going to make it to the end? How can I know that God will keep me? In all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, And let's keep going, shall we? Neither disability nor insanity, neither loneliness nor depression, neither imprisonment nor bankruptcy, neither poverty nor homelessness, neither depression nor cancer, neither wars nor hurricanes, neither bereavements nor abandonments, neither broken dreams nor injustices, nor whatever it is that you fear, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what terrible realities, what terrible fears you have brought with you here this morning, but if you are in Christ Jesus our Lord, this is speaking to you. Insert your greatest fears, right here, into this passage. And they may very well happen. God is not promising you a safe and comfortable future. But what He promises is that no matter what you face, no matter how traumatic, no matter how utterly devastating, His love for you will never fail. He will never let go of you. But He will keep you, He will hold on to you. Until the day he brings you to glory. So have you died to sin? Have you been freed from the law? Does the spirit of God dwell in you? Will you be brought to glory? The most dramatic thing about your life is how you answer those questions. But the answer to these questions is not finally found in anything that that you do. No, they all find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ If you are in Christ, then the answer is yes. And when you look at this panorama of what God has done in our lives, it slowly begins to dawn on us just what is going on. When God declares us justified, it's as if he's reached into the future, into Judgment Day, and brought that reality right into our present age right into our very lives. And the life that will perfectly characterize God's people, God's redeemed people then, begins to characterize our lives now. Imperfectly, yes, but truly. In us, God is making for himself a people who have died to sin, who have been freed from the law, who are filled with the Spirit of God, and who are filled with the hope of glory. Imperfect, But truly, our lives in this fallen world become glimpses of our risen Lord. In a world that is held in crushing bondage to sin, here is a people who walk in holiness and freedom, who subvert the oppression of sin with their faith, with their hope, with their love. And now, by our obedience, by our patient suffering, by our proclamation of the gospel— We declare that this cursed world is not the end, that sin will be judged, and the day is coming when the God of love will triumph. Brothers and sisters, wake up. Awaken to the true drama of your lives. This is no ordinary life that you lead. This is the work of God who is making all things new. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise. You are for us. And therefore, we are secure. Father, establish us in this hope. Cause our lives in this fallen world to indeed be glimpses of Jesus Christ to a perishing people. And Lord, use us for your glory. Persevere us in order that we might someday see you face to face. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.